0: happening now. We'd like to welcome our guests from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, our penultimate show for 2017, which I learned from Security Now means the next to last. We have one more. This is the episode number 78 for December the 20th, 2017. I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School and enjoying... Our first week of winter break, which was highlighted yesterday by an almost complete day of playing Minecraft with my 14 year old and really not even, you know, bathing or getting out of my pajamas. So, that, my friends, is vacation in the Friar home. So, joining me as always from a normally more cooler climate, Jason Neifer. How are you tonight, Jason?
1: I am well, sir, and I am coming from snowy Missoula, Montana. About, uh, 24 hours ago, we started having freezing rain, which turned on and off to snow. And I hear based on the weather, we're going to get a nice old dump of snow in the next 72 hours. So we'll have a nice white Christmas next Monday. So we're really excited about that. And, Um, I'm here in Missoula where I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school of which we're uh, closing as of tomorrow for 10 days for the holiday break. So things are slowly winding down here and, um as uh, Wes, did you mention earlier, it's our penultimate, pen, 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 that word pen, you said?
0: Yeah. Penultimate, that's right. Penultimate
1: that's- episode. And as a reminder, we talked about this a couple of times in the last month or so, but next week, uh, an hour earlier, we're going to have our end-of-the-year review episode. We're going to invite some special guests in and talk a little bit about what happened this year in technology 2017. And I have no doubt that we will find a lot of interesting things to talk about with our panel, so we hope you can join us next week at a 7 p.m. Mountain, 8 p.m. Central time, 9 p.m. East Coast time, which is the reason I believe that we're going an hour early is to make sure that the East Coast time is not too much past um, our adult bedtime. So we hope that you will join us next week for that exciting episode. Um, We do have something interesting to do this week, though. Um, I introduced Wes earlier today to the concept of Festivus. For those of you that don't understand Festivus, 20 years ago in 1997, it was December 18th, 2007, or I'm sorry, 97 to be exact. Um I was a young Pup just graduated from college and the Seinfeld show, the sitcom that was so popular in the 80s and 90s aired the Strike episode which is part of its last season and they introduced the world to a holiday called Festivus and I put uh, some information in the show notes you can go to www.edtechsr.com and see all of our show notes and all the links I put a link to the Hulu version of the episode and also to a Wikipedia article and it's actually based on a real holiday that one of the writers and the writer room made up, but um, ever since I got into a classroom, I used to celebrate Festivus with my kids because it's a fun, silly thing to do. And as part of Festivus, there's an annual airing of grievances that we are going to take on here tonight on the EdTech Situation Room. And Wes and I are going to go back and forth and talk about the things that we have problems with, with the EdTech and technology world in 2017. So Wes, would you start us off with a grievance that you're going to air
0: Absolutely. So I guess we'll probably end up being, uh you know, having grievances for those tools that we use the most and, you know, have the most insight into. So some of that is Apple. Apple, will you freaking choose two iPhone models and stop giving us a million choices? And by the way, maybe they shouldn't be $1,000 each, but we'll get to that later. But uh, it just reminds of the time when Jobs was gone from Apple and you had all these different models and he came in with this really nice two by two, you know, formula to say, this is how we meet consumer home need. This is how we, you know, focus on, on enterprise and design, et cetera. So I think Apple is just a little bit too far strung out on their models and it's too much for me to keep up with.
1: Well, on that note, I also have a grievance for Apple. Apple, please create a Mac Pro that's worth buying. We complained about this on this show in past uh, episodes, but right now, there's no viable option for people that want to buy a powerful desktop computer that's not attached to a monitor like the iMac. And ever since the garbage can Mac was released, which has apparently several technical problems including power issues, heat distribution issues, and it's not user upgradable, which means unlike the old massive aluminum cheese grater Macs, you can't keep it going. In fact, I still have what is now a 10-year-old iMac sitting in my office. that's perfectly, I'm sorry, a 10-year-old Mac Pro in my office. It's perfectly fast because I was able to upgrade it to more memory and SSD drives that's still going. I wanted to buy a new Mac Pro years ago, but there's been no model for me. So Apple, get on it, create a user-updatable Mac Pro that's worth the four or $5,000 investment you're trying to pawn off on the Pro iMac, which I don't think is a realistic deal for basically anyone in our listening audience.
0: And my second is, um, at some point, do we seize a pole and fight each other, Jason? I think we wrestle, (laughs) right? How are we supposed to do that? There's a
1: feats of strength is what those are called. So
0: so we're going to be skipping that part of Festus. But uh, Apple, everyone doesn't want a more expensive phone. In fact, what, what was amazing, I think around the beginning of this school year, was that the baseline ipad went from 16 gig to 32 gig and the price went down it was incredible and you know there's this thing called moore's law which said we're supposed to be able to get equivalent computing power for less money and i know that we're getting better you know phones and all this but i just think we're going the wrong direction hey but some of us have gone android because of this and other factors so apple uh Pay, pay attention to how expensive your phones are and recognize that we need to not just, you know, keep on going for the ceiling with, with cost.
1: Okay. Not all of our grievances have to do with Apple. We're going to now share a little love with our friends at Google. For those on the Android team and those that make Android phones, please, for the love that's all that's good, keep updating phones after you sell them to consumers. Uh, this month's Numbers for Android versions, which they release every month. This is from December 7th, 2017. Only 0.5% of all phones running Android are running the newest version of Android, Android Oreo. And the reason why is because other than phones made by Google, manufacturers do not keep up with updates for their phones. The one thing is you probably listened to earlier this year, Wes and I have been going back and forth about phones. I kind of talked him into an Android phone, and one of the things that he hasn't discovered yet is that they don't get upgraded very often. It's delayed and oftentimes canceled. I'm uh, uh, carrying in front of a phone that's three versions old. It's a, still a good phone, and I wish manufacturers would not only continue to update phones two or three versions in the future, but do it in a speedy and efficient way because I think it's hurting Android's growth because the manufacturers of Android phones aren't capable with updates. Google, please fix this problem.
0: All right. And before I share my next one, I uh, want to say to folks, I think we've got a couple of live viewers out there. We do have a chat room on our YouTube channel that uh, if you're viewing us live, you should be seeing. So please uh, chime in on the chat room with any questions or comments that you may have. And I'm going to go to Microsoft next for my grievance and say, Microsoft, freaking ditch Windows. Give us a platform that's actually secure and that we can restore and reimage readily. Now I will give a footnote to this that I uh, reimaged a Surface Book this last week and will be reimaging another one tomorrow. um and it was actually amazingly fast relative to the you've got to upgrade and install 8000 patches, you know, to bring your system up to speed. So I do think they're working on this, but it continues to be a huge pain and you know pain point um, at our school uh, in terms of how challenging it is to reimage those Windows systems. And it's also a security issue. Right. Because if we're not continually keeping things up to date, then that means that we're open to vulnerability. So anyway, I think Microsoft is actually on. The path for that, but it's and it's certainly a, a tall challenge to you know do that with all of the systems that that they've got to look at. But anyway, hey, did you know that well, Oklahoma blood Institute still runs Windows XP on Toughbooks and they have no plans that I that, well who knows what they have plans for? But anyway, I gave blood <laughs> on Sunday and I was like, oh, you're running Windows XP. When are you guys going to update that? And they just laughed.
1: Yikes. Uh, wow, I can't even wrap my brain around that one. Um, I have one more for Google though. Um, Google, please speed up the transition of Chrome OS to use Android apps. One of my biggest complaints, and I understand why you're not able to go back and update older Chromebooks before you announced that architecture two years ago, but there are many newer Chromebooks, and in some cases new Chromebooks, where you can't get Android apps either in the stable channel, or in some cases even the beta channel. And I think that's kind of ridiculous. I think with the amount of power and engineering that you have on your end, even if it's a difficult challenge to do that, you should absolutely 100% Push uh, 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 Android app adoption as quickly as possible on all newly re- released Chromebooks. It's something that really revolutionizes the platform, and any further delay means that you are, you know, diminishing the end user experience. Android apps now.
0: And my final grievance is to all users out there who have not yet embraced a password manager, give up your repeated use of passwords and embrace a password manager, LastPass, is a great one that's free and one password is wonderful there's several other different options but we continue to have you know a lot of reticence on the part of users who want to keep using that you know that favorite password and it's just it's just time to step into the 21st century and embrace password management which is the only viable way you can use unique passwords on every single website you use and long passwords which really should i think at least be 30 characters or whatever the maximum allowable is some sites will Reduce that, but it's it's ridiculous, right? Oh my gosh, how could I ever do that? Well, when you copy and paste it, it's not a problem. You just remember your main password and make sure that one is good.
1: And finally, I've got one for end users as well. This one's aimed at the education world. Let's make 2018 a meaningless buzzword-free year. And I'm talking about everything from 21st century learner to blended learning, even to online or digital learning. Let's stop using buzzwords that we're not willing to clearly define. I think one of the biggest enemies we have to technology is when people try to pretend it's magical in a way that it's not by saying it's going to cure all ills. And I feel like the folks that kind of do us the biggest service are ones that promising that uh, uh, digital learning and 21st century learning and blended learning can cure all the ills of education. You have two geeks that are speaking to you weekly about this issue. We know that's not true, even though we think computers play a very important role in schools and education. Let's make 2018 a buzzword-free year.
0: All right, there you have it, the airing of grievances for 2017. Uh, Jason, how long has it been since the uh, the hollowed halls of uh, was it was it Helena High School or what was the last high school that that had a airing of the grievances at the end of December?
1: Uh, that was 2010 was the last year. No, 2009 was the last year that I had an official airing of grievances. So. Um, Uh, I've missed it, and although I do celebrate Festivus every year, December 23rd with my family. So uh, I'll be keeping my list of grievances, and then, of course, you know, um, uh, celebrating Festivus miracles. So to all of you out there, happy Festivus, um, and I hope you enjoy this Festivus season.
0: And if you tuned in a little late in the show notes, we do have a link on Hulu to that episode. It was a 1997 Seinfeld episode called The Strike. And I did have the pleasure of watching that with my 17-year-old who had never seen an episode of Seinfeld before. So thank you very much, Jason, for that encouragement. Uh, Before we do our quick review of what we do, Uh, And I'll let Jason do that and get into this week's articles. I want to give a big shout out to Eric Kurtz, who gave us a podcast shout out. If you do not follow Eric Kurtz on Twitter, he is the very mysterious handle, Eric Kurtz. So it's E-R-I-C-C-U-R-T-S. And he um, shared a link that has been retweeted a whole bunch, a lot more than, than most of my uh, tweets ever see. And it, w- it was called 11 Great EdTech Podcasts, Learn and Grow with These Awesome Podcasts. So it's got 44 retweets and 92 likes, which is quite, quite a bit. And Eric is the author of Control Alt Achieve. And, uh, we were featured there and appreciate that shout out. And it also is a great list of other tech podcasts because I certainly find myself, um, uh, my, my life is enhanced and my thinking is strongly shifted by the opportunity to listen to tech podcasts, both educational as well as mainstream. And so thanks to Eric for that. Jason, what are we about tonight in this penultimate experience of 2017?
1: Well, in the odd chance that this is your first time here, because maybe you were referred to us by one of the shout-outs we've received here at the year-end, this is the EdTech Situation Room, where we take a look at this week's technology headlines through an educational lens. And so we find some interesting bits from technology journalism, we post the links at our website, edtechsr.com, and this podcast then provides the commentary. So um, as we spent the first part of our, our episode, this time airing grievances, there is a lot of tech news that's gone on, so where would you like to start first, Mr. Fryer?
0: Well, I was the one to uh, drop in a lot of security articles, and I think I want to go to this Wired article from December 13th first, how a dorm room Minecraft scam brought down the Internet. This is an amazing story, right? We've got multiple examples, and we may have time to, to talk about some of the other ones, of you know young people, teenagers, college-age kids, who are identifying vulnerabilities, in some cases creating them, and this tells a story that, that made news because it was in an Anchorage, Alaska courtroom that we had some guilty pleas to this uh, Mirai Botnet um, uh, hack. And what, what happened here, and I'll just try to, to quickly summarize, is last year we had an unprecedented denial of service attack, uh, a DDS, and a denial of service attack. If I'm saying, am get my acronym right? DDOS. Uh, so, uh, it basically is a, a ton of packets hitting a, a website or a group of websites to the point where they cannot. Withstand all of that traffic, and they 're effectively shut down they 're not accessible, and it it ends you know the functioning of the internet for th- that computer or from people who are trying to access that computer. Well, what the FBI researchers found and, and by the way, so what happened last year was the most incredibly huge Denial of service attacks. It, they they likened it in this article to a thermonuclear detonation. So the amount of terabits per second was just so astronomical. As an example, security researcher Brian Krebs was targeted, and Akamai, which is the set of redundant servers around the world that provides streaming for you know tons and tons of folks, had provided protection for Brian, and they said, Brian, we can't sustain this, we're cutting you loose, and Google had to pick him up. So it it all traces back to a Rutgers University student and a couple friends who were running a Minecraft server and wanted to basically hurt their competition. And what they ended up doing was figuring out how to get Internet of Things devices like uh, digital video recorders, like uh, webcams, things that are at your house, routers, to be um, hacked with their default passwords, and then become part of a huge uh, global network. And and what they ended up doing uh, to cover their tracks was putting it out on the open web, and then more nefarious shady characters, you know, took a hold of this. And did other kinds of attacks, like the attack on Brian Krebs, uh, the big one was the attack on nine uh, DNS, which is part of the this backbone of the internet. DNS is what converts the words that we put in for edtechsr.com to a number and goes to that, that server. And so there's incredible statistics in this article. Uh, at, at the peak, it, it, it enslaved over 600,000 devices around the world. And one of the biggest things is this this represents, as they say, an existential threat to the Internet itself, right? If these kinds of attacks are able to, to go on and, and go on at the scale that they are, um, actors who would want to could actually take down the internet. And so, um, I think that it's a, a pretty big eye opener. And, uh, you know, I, I, just had not heard of this. So, Jason, any of this news to you or had you already kind of read this, read this story about the Minecraft background of, of
1: Mirai? I saw an article referring to this and a little bit about the, I think some of the court action, but I, I didn't get past students. That's the, as much detail. This is a lot more detail. And of course, what's interesting about that is that, um, you know, with, with a lot of these, um, uh, well, what, what people are considering attacks, obviously there's lots of big things that are really are attacks and the, uh, the WannaCry thing was also covered in another article that Wes dropped in this week. Uh, the United States government is now uh, confirming that, that their belief that it was North Korean hackers that engaged in that particular attack, which is a very significant um, cybersecurity threat, but you know, not everything is even nefarious at the scale that it is. And one of the things about the number of insecure devices that we have on the large worldwide internet, I'm talking about Internet of Things devices, I'm talking about out-of-day computers, I'm talking about older hardware that has long passed its security prime, Um, little things can become big things very quickly. And so uh, it's no surprise to anyone that runs security as part of their school district, whether they have experience or background or not, they know that little things can turn to big things very quickly. But the Bottom line is that we have to, you know, be be conscious of it. And um if you are intending to go into computer science and you're not considering security as a potential uh avenue for employment, you should seriously consider that because it's 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 obviously gonna be a massive growth area and it's not just enterprises, it's gonna start to become homes.
0: And Let's just tag on to that uh, Buzzfeed article from December 19th. Words of praise, but no forgiveness for hacker who stopped North Korean cyber attack. And they are referring to the WannaCry attack. But again, the story here is just amazing and worth repeating and talking to kids. And I'll I'll mention what this has made me think of for our school for next year in terms of a white hat uh, hacking club, because the the kid uh, he's a is a Brit who figured out how to stop WannaCry. He analyzed the code, recognized there was an unregistered domain that essentially would function as a kill switch. And this was the most powerful ransomware we've seen on the planet. This thing was stopping hospitals in the UK and other parts of Europe from being able to operate. I mean, this isn't just, oh, you know... Some some little fuzzy. My stuff got hacked by Target, and somebody may may get my information later. No, this was actually you know stopping um, you know important hospital and, and emergency you know kinds of things from ha- from functioning. So anyway, the guy who who say who who was the hero that saved this thing. He registered this domain name and got this kill switch and ended up shutting this thing down. He got arrested after DEF CON uh, for some malware that he had created and put online a couple years earlier. So the line, and we've talked about this before on the show, it's like the Old West, like, is he on this side of the law or the other side of the law? I mean, this is the reality today with, with cyber attacks and cybersecurity um, is that oftentimes, you know, the white hat today was a black hat yesterday. And what it's made me think of, and I'm going to visit with um, one of our you know computer science teachers, um, I think we should be having a club for kids, right, to be able to say, hey, if you've got skills, I mean, I know – that um, there's a lot I don't know about our network in terms of what's happening and what's going on. And so vulnerabilities, you know, pen tests, all this kind of stuff. Uh, we actually did, by the way, sign up for for a, a cyber attack, cyber insurance, um, you know, just prior to the holidays. And it's a reality that all organizations need to face. And in school, I think we want to help channel the skills of students in a constructive way. In fact, in that article, it talks about the U.S. Department of Justice trying to step up its outreach efforts to youth, right? Because if you've got computer skills, Uncle Sam needs you. And we need to be, uh, aware of that at school and finding constructive channels for those students rather than just, you know, casting them out to, to gnash teeth in the outer darkness to say, hey, why don't you come in and see what you can do to help us? And obviously there's important, you know, layers of trust there if we're going to allow them to see, you know, the inner workings of our network. Um, but on the other hand, I think better to d- cultivate those relationships and help propel those students on a career path, uh, forward, rather than you know ignore ignore what's going on and and then possibly not have them, you know, with a constructive outlet.
1: Yep, absolutely true. Why don't you continue on with a couple of those other security articles, Wes?
0: Okay. Um, Reuters on December twentieth uh, <laughs> reported that China's surveillance streaming platform uh, had been shut down and amid privacy concerns. This is kind of crazy. So China is rapidly building. We've heard about London, I think, for a number of years being the most well, what I heard in terms of, I guess, a Western country, most surveilled, um, you know, city. I've since read that Moscow and parts of, of Russia actually eclipse London. But China is definitely becoming a highly surveilled um, country, not just for what you browse on the Internet as far as the Great Firewall of China, but, pardon me, also just in terms of cameras. And so they have a lot of cameras in public places, it could be swimming pools. It could even be schools and classrooms. And so they were getting complaints as far as these things streaming live on the Internet. So think about your school surveillance cameras, but people just being able to tune in from wherever they wanted and being able to watch kids and watch people. And so it's kind of a sign of the times, I guess, about where we are in terms of surveillance cameras and you know not necessarily on a school level, but on a personal level i 've got some friends who picked up some Black Friday deals on surveillance cameras you know tossed them into their house, got them going um, hoping that that 's going going to be beneficial. Just be very aware of the importance to update and make sure those things are secure uh, and I would I, it wouldn 't be a bad idea to put a Google Alert on the manufacturer of your device right because if some kind of a vulnerability comes out you know, or an update comes out, how are you going to become aware of that? That's not something we've been programmed to do with a smoke detector or a thermostat or other, you know, a toaster or something else that you get for your home, but it is something we need to to get oriented to and to be recognizing. Um, and then the last one in that series is uh, from University of Michigan News. Unhackable computer under development with Point. $6 million DARPA grant, and uh, this is from December 19th. And I guess what they're doing is DARPA, who we've talked about before on the show, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, formed after World War II to try to prevent another Pearl Harbor-like surprise attack on the United States. Um, they have incredible technology, which um, – oh. Jake Annie Jacobson, who's the author of the Pentagon's brain that's all about, you know, DARPA and these kind of projects, uh, says it's 10 to 20 years ahead of where we are as consumers. One of the things this computer is going to do, allegedly, is actually move the physical space where things are saved so that if that part of the computer is compromised, the, the hackers won't continue to have access to that. And so they're trying to develop this unhackable computer. I don't know, Jason, you tweeted me earlier today about the, the something they said about the Titanic. Uh, you think this is a, a doable thing? The computer which cannot be hacked.
1: I think the problem is, is that the, when you, whenever you advertise that something is being undoable, it automatically focuses extraordinary laser beams on on your systems. And so, I, I I I hope it's the case. Like it seems to me that we can think of designs that that are less hackable than they would be otherwise. But the problem, of course, is that if you know unhackable were truly achievable i think we would have made some space there by now right we're 40 years into the personal computer revolution and it seems like it's uh it's a pretty you know uh, impossible dream to this point uh you know, even well-known security hawks uh can't seem to lock things down as much as that so i certainly hope we can head in that direction but you know we'll see
0: you know, it's mentioning the Titanic makes me think of James Cameron and the movie. And of course, how this might not be nearly as exciting a movie, but it will be interesting to see if Hollywood will pick up on this, right? Like even yeah. the U.S. Department of Justice, if they want to do outreach to the youth of America. Um, yeah, I've seen some interesting U.S. Army and U.S. Air Force, you know, advertisements, marketing and stuff like that to say, you know, come, come join us and join our cyber force as well as our, you know, flying and fighting force uh it'll be interesting to see if we'll have a portrayal of you know the heroic nature of of these kinds of investigations that the first article i mentioned about the um uh, the Mirai botnet guys in, in Alaska is pretty fascinating about the rabbit holes that the FBI went down in order to get the registered names and when they hit a VPN that was an outlet, you know, computer in France and, and all these things as far as privacy. But, you know, these, uh, these packets and these ones and zeros, they, they do leave footprints and we need folks to are, are savvy to uh, being able to, to track those. So it'll be interesting to see if we'll uh, have any sort of the top gun of cybersecurity. I don't know that it will have quite the sex appeal of, of uh, Tom Cruise and, and all of his co-stars. But anyway, we can only hope. Where, where should we go next?
1: Well, let's start picking up on some of the kind of more traditional news this week. I want to start by focusing on Apple because there's some interesting things out about Apple this week. First, um, there's been an interesting story that's developed over the last 72 hours where um, I think – I don't know if it's a security researcher or just a nerd – basically decided to um, look at uh, the iPhone battery and how his phone has been slowing down and noticed that the CPU speed – of his phone was higher when the battery was newer than later when the battery had, had had been through so many cycles it was starting to deteriorate. And then when he replaced the battery, it uh, you know, bumped back up in speed again. And what was deducted from that was that the iPhone is basically designed to become slower over time by design. And this is where it kind of diverges because there have been some media sources that have said that You know, basically the iPhone is plan obsolescence, right? It's supposed to basically uh, become worth upgrading in two to three years because it gets slower over time. And there are others that say that that's actually a a, a very good call that Apple's making because it allows battery life to continue to be good to great, as Apple devices do have a great uh, reputation for that. Um, so in other words, the the battery de- degradation issue is handled by Apple by slowing down the CPU. So first and foremost, I will say that that's been you know my experience too. That over time it feels like Apple phones do you know slow down, and that's not just the upgradeability of them. Obviously, newer operating systems are heavier, and when they get updated, they're going to be a little slower. But as a I guess a former iPhone user, Wes, is that your general experience as well?
0: I, I didn't realize that it was slowing down. Definitely I have learned about the importance of replacing the battery. Uh, we replaced a battery in our youngest uh, iPhone 5 and then I think in, in an iPhone uh, maybe six uh, for our son. And one thing the article does point out is when you get a new battery from Apple, which generally runs you about 79 bucks, and if you're fortunate to have access to an Apple store, that can be a same-day kind of turnaround. They can, yep. they can do that in-store in for, you know, in an hour or so. Um, you know, it, it it does restore that full feature, you know, speed. So, um, but I, uh, that's interesting. I guess they're they're, they're saying that it's gonna take out the peaks, I, you know, some of the some of the, the the highest speeds. I don't know. I I wonder how much. Is this something that's happening with other phone manufacturers too? I've I, I've never heard about this before. I guess I definitely, you know, definitely am been aware of the battery stuff because you see that, right? You bring in your phone, they run this diagnostic and say, "Oh, you've had you know this many power cycles on your battery," and you're like, "Oh man," and, right. and you see the, the degradation. Have you ever heard of this before on another phone?
1: I have not heard of this on other phones. And in fact, I did see an article earlier today that wasn't the one that I put in the show notes that suggested that Android phones just generally don't do this, but they're also much more terrible about battery life. One of the things that Apple is obsessive about is battery life. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that they're developing things in the operating system that allow for a better battery experience for its users. But I do think that uh, there's a couple of messages here. The first one, the fact that Apple has gone away completely from user replaceable batteries, usually for thinness reasons, right? They want to be able to make the phone as thin as possible, so building a battery that kind of pours into the leftover spaces in the phone is obviously a great advantage to them, but that's one of the reasons why um, I actually prefer the few Android phones that are left that allow you to replace the battery, because batteries... You know, off the shelf, even sold retailer cheap, 15, 20 what would, would be a battery would cost if you bought it off the shelf. If you can replace it yourself, you can basically refresh your, your, your phone battery without worrying about the degradation part. And so I think that there's one place where Android tends to be superior.
0: And I want to thank you, Jason, for the Geek of the Week a couple weeks ago, which was that Android Battery article, because I read that. And, man, that has made a huge difference because just as this happens with folks, right, you install different apps, you turn on location services, and you don't really realize what's running there in the background. And so what I have been doing – um as that article recommends, is just turning on location services when I need to, right? We went down to shop somewhere and more we hadn't been today, and boom, just pop, you know, click the button. Google Maps is on, it's happy. You know, sometimes if I'm going to do an Instagram post or something that needs to be location aware, then it'll I'll pop it on. Uh, but that that right there makes a huge difference. Simply turning location services off. And so shout out to that article and thanks to Jason a couple of weeks ago, because um, it's just, even on my iPhone, it's stuff that I probably needed to be doing and just wasn't as aware. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be more aware of this. And I think that uh, with, as is the case with all kinds of computing things, we need to recognize every device is going to have its limitations. Everything can crash. Everything is going to need some kind of, of care and maintenance, right? Just like your, your car or just yes. about anything else, um, you know, maybe kitchen appliances may not, but, you know, certainly things that you're going to be using as a daily driver, you know, you're going to have to do some investing in and you're going to need to, you know, do, do care and feeding. And so perhaps these kinds of battery upgrades are just something that we should assume that we're going to be able to do. And, you know, that's part of Apple's modest operandi, right? Back to your grievance on the iMac. I mean, you're paying $10,000 for a machine that you can't crack open legally and do any upgrades to, I mean, this is, this is the Johnny Ive inherited from Steve Jobs modus operandi. And clearly when it looks at stock price and profits that served Apple really well, but in the long game, which Apple is playing against Google, against Microsoft and others, um, I tend to think that, you know, the upgradable moddable, uh, hackable device is going to uh, is going to prevail in the end uh, when you look at global sales, but it hasn't yet. So we'll see.
1: Wes, I need to take a quick commercial break here. So if you wouldn't mind taking over for just a moment, I'll be right back.
0: All right, sounds good. Well, while uh, Jason takes a commercial break, um, I think I'll actually scoot down to an article that I put under the Google header um, from the G Suite updates from December 5th, 2017. And this is entitled Embed HTML and JavaScript in the New Google Sites. And I want to give a shout out to the uh, the Google uh, Teacher uh, Tribe podcast. Um, I'll flip over here on my handy dandy pocket casts app and uh, Matt Miller and Casey bell are the authors of the Google teacher tribe podcast. So we're doing several different uh, shout outs tonight and they have had 34 different episodes to date. But um, the one that I was uh, listening to most recently was about the new Google sites. Um, I have been a, a major, major user of Google sites for a long, long time. And as you might be aware um, Google Sites is is now in a transition period between two different versions. And the new version, while it looks slicker and definitely has a better feel in terms of, you know, the sites that it creates and I think the interface, um, it has been limited in capabilities. One of the biggest ones I have been holding out for is something called domain mapping. And so that means being able to take your website and instead of having... Your address to it be sites.google.com/slash, and then you know the name of your user account, or in the case of a of a G Suite school account, uh, the address of your you know G Suite uh, domain, and then the the name that you've given it. You know you can do something very slick and clever, um, like for instance, I have all of my handouts on a website that's a Google site that I just call. Uh, wiki, W-I-K-I dot dot com. So you go to wiki com and boom, you're there on the Google site. And so anyway, I have held off in transitioning over to the new Google sites. Uh, and I'm, that's probably the number one feature that's been, well, that and a, and a migration path, right? So. I've got hundreds of pages in different Google sites on, uh, for different kinds of projects. And so anyway, this article from the uh, official G Suites blog is really good news because what it means is, uh, we have much more freedom to embed HTML and JavaScript in the new Google sites. Google sites for security reasons as well as perhaps, you know, other kind of coding reasons that I don't fully understand has really limited the things that you can embed and the ways that you embed. Uh, and so this is definitely good news and would encourage you to um, not only check that out, but also um, if you don't uh, already subscribe, um, check out the G gsuiteupdates.googleblog.com. Um, I don't have this one in the show notes, but it is worth mentioning that there is a fantastic Google Plus community because, you know, hey, hopefully we're giving you some, you know, updates and tips and things like that on a weekly basis to check out. And and sometimes people will ask, I'm sure Jason gets this, how do you follow this? How do you keep up? Well, a lot of times it has to do with, um, you know, who, who we follow and, you know, what kinds of things they are up to. And so as an educator, if you're in a role where you're administering a Google site, I cannot – uh, recommend highly enough the Google Plus community and podcast, which is now called Giuseppe Admins, because, you know, Google uh, for education – well, Google Apps has become G Suite, and so it's the G Suite for education. That's where Giuseppe, G, S, F, E, Admins comes from. So, Jason and I just kind of took us through the embed HTML and JavaScript in Google Sites and talked a little bit about the, the Google Site transition, so – Great, that's my Google article.
1: So on the, the Google topic, the other great, interesting thing that was, this was actually announced a couple of months ago, but it's coming, I believe, in February. Um, Google is going to start in their browser. So that means the desktop, laptop, mobile browsers, blocking ads automatically that don't conform to a set of standards that Google is a member of. And what's really interesting about the articles about this is that you know, a lot of people are calling this the Google's blocking ads, which is not true at all for a variety of reasons. One of them is which... Google makes a lot of cash money on ads, right? So they're not going to be in the business of blocking advertisements. But in the last four or five years, there's been a lot of discussion um, around advertising and obviously some advertising companies have more kind of design and ethical boundaries than others and so Google's been part of an ad coalition that's starting to put in some subtle rules for ads that are acceptable ads and for those that don't meet those standards, they're going to be blocked on the Chrome browser and one of the things that Google is arguing for is that they hope that when users see that the experience with advertising can be less Annoying and obnoxious that they'll turn ad blockers off. And so one of the things we've talked about ad blockers a couple of times uh, since our show's beginning, Um, but something that's been an interesting journey of mine is that uh, I use uBlock Origin as the current plugin that I use on Chrome and Firefox to block ads. But a number of the websites that I go to that are good, legitimate news sites have asked me to turn the blocker off before I can access the content. And one of the weekly checks that I do as part of our show here is wired.com is an excellent news source in fact it 's something I subscribe to uh, as the paper magazine I like it so much it 's a few few paper magazines that that i would would purchase. And they have an ad blocker on. So when I go there every week and I'm on a new browser, I refresh my Chromebook, I have to remind my ad blocker to turn off for that site. But it's very interesting to me that Google is trying to kind of save advertising by enforcing some community dynamics so they can limit the amount of annoying advertising. So first, Wes, uh, do you unblock regularly? Are you running into the same thing I am that ad blockers are becoming less effective?
0: You know, I have run into that uh, in sites, you know, that are kind of pleading to say, we noticed you're l- running an ad blocker. Please consider turning this off so that we can keep our lights on. Um, I am using Ublock Origin as well. Oh, gosh. And I just don't want to turn back from that. You know, I'll talk a little bit about our new Google Home devices These are in, our, in our house uh, since our last show. And one of the things that's irritated me is with the news, you know, you get packed in the ad right at the beginning. So they're going to, you know, make sure they force feed that to you. So, I have seen this. Um, I think dancing the dance around free services, you know, paid for with ads, it, it's a delicate dance. I'm glad to hear, you know, about these standards because I'm hopeful at least one of them involves not autoplaying video, right? That's a really yes. bad thing that I do not like when I open up a page and, hey, I'm just going to autoplay this video. I love the fact that the Chrome browser shows me with an icon which tab and which set of tabs is playing the audio, because sometimes that can be distressing, especially if you're trying to do a conference presentation or something and you've had your machine muted and then you unmute, no, oh, the stuff is coming from somewhere. So yes, I've experienced it. And I think that the the dance we're doing around all of this is pretty important. And obviously Google wants this to work too, right? They ride on advertising. We've talked about it on the show where even if you look at, my son asked me tonight, how did you decide Google home versus Alexa? And I said, well, I trust Google more and I like them more, you know, and and Amazon's deal is selling us products where Google's thing is, is is basically monetizing our data they collect from us and selling us advertising or selling advertising to advertisers and, and serving us up to the advertisers. And so, you know, I I do like Google. I think that we get a lot out of this relationship, and I also am glad that, you know, they're invested in seeing that this is successful and that we're not offended and angry and all, you know, walk away from their browser and operating system and their experience. So this sounds like a positive to me.
1: Well, and I will add that, you know, the advertising issues obviously is very sensitive to me too because i rely quite a bit on free content right and i i talked about earlier this year how i've now subscribed to the local paper online because i asked them to turn off comments and they did um and i promised that i would start subscribing to reward them for taking a good step towards civility um but the other thing that that i've also noticed too is that a lot of newspaper sites as an example the ad blocker turned on makes it an Good browsing experience. The ad doctor turned off and it's. Absolutely terrible, and I'm just going to call out my old hometown paper, the Helena Independent Record, which is a, a newspaper that's struggling. They they don't have as many re- or obviously subscribers as they used to. They've cut the journalism staff down to bare bones, and they're 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 a struggling newspaper. But um, you know, and I I don't purchase them because I don't live in Helena anymore. But the ironic thing about it is that I find their paper to be unreadable with advertising turned on. In fact, I just compared the two to see if that had changed, and basically it goes from being a decent reading experience to an experience where two thirds, two thirds of the top of the page before I scroll down is large, obnoxious advertising. And like, I always feel like there has to be a better way. So if Google can get together with other ad servers and provide a better experience for end users, I think that's an important thing that we should reward. That said, you know, it's, I, I, Also, don't want to drive free content out. Uh, If anything, we should be funding more journalism, more sites that that work on the things that we need for a functioning democracy. But I'm not quite sure if advertising is going to do it.
0: And I'm not sure these articles are in the the show notes this week, but I was reading some things this week about different websites that are taking a balanced approach, where they're not saying we're fully, you know, ad – Supported, we are going to have some advertising, but then we're going to we're going to go after subscriptions, and we're going to go after you know high quality you know niche content or the kind of things you're going to want to pay for. And I think that's vital. Um, this reminds me of our our essentially Google Summit. It was G Camp OKC, but it was the Google conference that we hosted the first Saturday of November. And one of the breakout sessions I was able to lead was titled YouTube Tips and Tricks. And I asked people to just you know at the beginning take a couple of minutes introduce themselves to their neighbor and talk about their number one biggest pain points with YouTube. And what do you think that was? Advertising, number one. And 75% or more of the, probably 30 or 40 folks that were there, maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe it was 20, but whoever, you know, they did not know about uBlock Origin and they were not running an ad blocker. So from an educational standpoint, for sure, right? Bring back our articles here to the educational lens if as a classroom teacher, professor, anyone, you know, talking with students or, or any kind of learner, if you're not running an ad blocker, you definitely need to. And this is a reason, I think, not to show YouTube videos through your Apple TV or even your mobile device, that, which may have more limited ad blocking capabilities. Do that with your desktop Chrome browser using an extension like uBlock Origin. I'll be sure to drop that in into the show notes because I I really think that was one I think Ben Wilkoff might have shared that along with Tab suspender and uh, extensity which is a uh, one that, that easily make you know lets you turn stuff on or off um, you know it's those are important things to know about and to share and let's not assume if you're listening to this podcast you're probably you are at some level an ed tech geek, right? Cause you're listening to a tech podcast. Probably most of the teachers at your school and at mine are not listening to shows like this and they may not know about this. And this is, this is something that can change the game in terms of sharing content like YouTube videos with students to be able to turn those videos off and make the experience, you know, digestible and, and relevant, not, Oh crap, we have to watch this ad now for 30 seconds.
1: Yep. Absolutely. True. Uh, where to next, Wes?
0: Why don't you pick? I kind of did a whole string of security articles, so why don't you <laughs> okay. go here to pick
1: a couple? Great. Thanks for the break there. Um, uh, well, here's just a sad note. Um, last Friday, rest in peace, AOL Instant Messenger um, was shut off for the final time, and a uh, moment of silence for AOL. I am.
0: Do you have a graveyard for these things, Jason? Do you keep uh, them?
1: I, I I don't, but I did do something on Thursday night. Uh, I did try to get in my old AOL Instant Messenger account, which was from the late '90s. Uh, my username was Viva La Norm, and um, I tried to get into it. And when I couldn't figure out my password, it sent something to my old Hotmail account, which would have been you know uh, 18 years ago, right? I haven't used Hotmail since Gmail was available, basically. Um, and then I had a, my own personal email server for a while and then jumped on Hotmail and never looked back. And um, sadly, I was not able to get on for one last um, one last hello uh, to, to AOL IM. But it was my first instant messaging service. I still remember in the mid-90s when AOL was the hot property and I would dial in to my five hours a month and <laughs> engage all right. Hey, while you take a, a drink break,
0: <laughs> I will jump up to one of your other Apple articles. Um, this is from the verge on December the 20th. Apple might combine iOS and Mac apps next year. Wow. Um, you know, one of, one of Jason's grievances, uh, was, was wanting to accelerate that process for Google of merging the Android and the Chrome worlds. I think this is super interesting. Um, We've had you know the development, I'm trying to think of the word, where you've got universal, I think, app, where it works on iPad and it works on, on the, the iPhone. And we've been seeing right with this app store. I mean, I continue to be plagued you know by these pop-ups that are reminding me, "Hey, update, update. And by the way, from last week's show, If you're running High Sierra and you haven't, you know, installed your latest update, there was a root user hack, which was a vulnerability, which was a really big deal um, that required, I think, local access to your machine in order to do it. But anyway, we all need to be patching our devices regularly. So this whole tendency of, you know, the desktop machine seems to be moving towards the mobile in terms of the App Store it's pretty interesting. Do you do you find this a viable rumor, Jason? And and can I, uh, you know, bet bet my money in Las Vegas right now that we're going to see a a combined developer announcement in June at, at WWDC?
1: Um, I do. Although I have to apologize, my eyes are watering up now. I think it's, I'm still a little verklempt over AOL. I am dying, but I do think it's very viable because I do think that there's some thought to the fact that Apple and its back pocket might be trying to create like a ARM-based processor laptop. So in other words, iPad chip with a laptop form factor. And
0: This laptop is right here, right? This has an A7 in it. That's actually why we're not, you know, video conferencing on it right now because it's not quite the horses that... An Intel chip is, but interesting. Well,
1: and I could see a th- I could see a world where they keep they they issue a laptop platform that's not unlike the Surface, or I'm sorry, the Windows 10s system or the Chromebook system for that matter, where there's a limited app store that you can pull from, and Apple utilizes kind of that cross-platform piece. And according to that article about the merge of the two, that basically they would allow developers to pick the platforms they can go onto based on one code base. So you can say, I want that's available on the desktop OS and the iPad OS and the iPhone OS so that it goes across. And I would assume that it also becomes ultimately true for then for the TV OS that goes on the Apple TV. And I think it's a very interesting prospect. And one of the things that I feel like that Apple's doing a little better little better job on the Microsoft, for example, is that they are trying to find ways to take hardware and reinvent it a little bit so that it can be faster with with I'm sorry, more long lasting with battery. Not unlike some of the work the Microsoft is doing with the ARM-based Windows that that they announced last week where they're claiming 36 hours of battery life um, on a slower but a much more efficient processor. So yeah I'll be curious to see that. And I do think that that's an innovation that would show some sign of life over at, at Apple Corp. Well,
0: we are at the top of the hour, but I, I think we got to have this article before Geeks of the Week because it, it starts with "Sorry, Wes." What is this with with YouTube delays, Jason? With with apps?
1: Well, we had mentioned a couple of times that YouTube was supposed to appear on both the Apple TV and the platform, the the Fire TV platform from Amazon, and I believe also. Um, that there were some other third-party systems that 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 it was supposed to appear on, and that's been a promise that's been since the middle of the year, I think. I want to say maybe at the Apple Apple Developer Conference this summer, and it's been delayed once again until January. So, Wes, you will not have a native YouTube app available to you on Apple TV or on the newer Apple TVs until uh, later or until uh, early next year.
0: Well, that's going to be a newer one though, because we I've got I do have a YouTube app on my Gen Four Apple TV. Um, I wonder, does this have something to do with the fight that that we've been seeing with with uh, Amazon? And there were, there was some stuff we had last week. I don't think we talked about where you know Amazon and Apple have been have been arguing, and and Apple was going to actually pull. Um, some of it. So, yeah. well, maybe, I, oh, maybe. Oh, this is the service. This is yeah. what that is. Yeah, this is the the TV service. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. So, that's, that's
1: so we'll see. Um, and you know, and I, I do think that yeah, you know, that the sad part about these kind of ecosystems building up. Is that, you know, the users lose in the end, right? And so if everyone's stuff works on everyone else's stuff, it means you can pick the best hardware and best software for your particular needs. And so I do hope that Google, uh, decides ultimately to allow things like YouTube, the most popular video service in the history of the world, to exist on every platform where it needs to. Because I think that only helps YouTube and in fact helps the end user even more.
0: All right. Well, let's do some uh, geeks of the week and then we'll get out of here for this penultimate show. Um, we do want to remind everybody, though, that next week will be an hour earlier and we should have some special guests joining us for the 2017 EdTech year in review. But for my geek of the week, um, actually, I'm going to do, do a couple. Uh, the first thing is, um, J- or sometime, Jason, I'm going to have to introduce you to my Oklahoma City Jason friend um, uh, who... Um, well, it's actually, it's not, not a Jason friend. His name is James. It starts with a J. But J-E-D Jed is his handle. And I got I haven't seen him for a couple of years. He used to be the tech director of OneNet, our state network. And now he's part of an Internet2 consortium It's multi-state. And anyway, just a, a delightfully geeky guy who loves Android. And when he told me about this combined with the fact that you can play like a, the same Pandora station or Google Play Music station synced in multiple rooms. Those were the two big selling points for me that led to my early Christmas present of four $30 Google Home Minis. So, yes, it was $120 splurge, you know, but we've got these around the house. And the feature is called broadcast voice messages. Have you used that before, Jason, at your house?
1: No, that's interesting, though. This
0: is awesome. So I can take my Google Assistant on my phone anywhere I am on the planet, which has basically just been the Oklahoma City area since we've known about it. And I can say, uh, "G Home, broadcast, hey, can you guys start the stove, you know, or start the oven preheating? We're gonna, I'm gonna cook tonight, or whatever." And like a you know intercom system at school, it it broadcasts out on each speaker that my Google uh, Home app is is connected to, so that is so cool, and we've used that multiple times. In fact, I used that to to take breakfast taco orders the other day um, when I was out and just uh, announced to the girls, "Hey, if you want to uh, order a taco, you know, text me right now what you want." (laughs) And so, but it's a game changer, man. Not not for taco orders, but like we've cut the cord in terms of having a phone line. So our kids actually do not hardly they don't they don't know a world where you have a you know multiple phones in your house that ring and somebody has to pick it up and say you know friar residents this is sarah speaking may I help you like that that has not been part of their childhood and from a from a safety and security standpoint you know there have been times where we're like why don't they pick up their phone so anyway that's my first geek of the week and then the second one um this is a real tin hat one so get ready and hold on to your chairs but uh I really like this. We, I, I, I had uh, the girls and, and Shelly all watch it with me last night because you can get it on, on Vimeo or you can get it on iTunes now. It's Dr. Stephen Greer's new video, Unacknowledged. And <laughs> this relates to my most retweeted post of 2017 from two days ago uh, from a New York Times article. Um, today, this has 118 likes and 60 retweets, which I don't really get. Um, there's an article called Glowing Auras and Black Money, the, the Pentagon's Mysterious UFO Program. And unacknowledged is... Uh, not only a video about, um, you know, how many countries in the world are moving towards disclosure and trying to declassify files that, you know, show that, yes, we've been contacted by, you know, intelligent beings from other planets. Um, but it actually goes deeper into the constitutional issues here with um, unacknowledged special access projects and, you know, some pretty cool stuff that is, uh, you know, about um, uh, what is it called? Um Zero sum energy. Anyway, it gets into it gets into energy and multidimensional travel. Pretty cool stuff. So yeah, there you go. Unacknowledged your twenty seventeen documentary recommendation from Wes.
1: There it is. Well, I have a pretty simple one to offer this week, and I noticed this earlier today that a very popular app on the Android Play Store is. It's called Nova Launcher, and Nova Launcher is, and and for those of you that that are iOS people, one of the things that is a really great thing about Android is you can really change the user experience on an Android phone by installing what's referred to as a launcher. And a launcher essentially is a skin that allows you to kind of re-envision what the phone looks like. And there are literally hundreds of launchers available. And in fact, you can do everything from you can make your, your Android phone look like an iPhone, for example. In fact, a lot of fake iPhones you can pick up in countries where knockoffs are very common are actually Android phones that have an iOS skin on it to make it look like an iPhone. But my favorite launcher has been for some time now the Nova Launcher, and the Nova Launcher allows you extreme customizability so you can create the experience that you're looking for on your phone. Nova is free, but for, I think it's $4.99, you can actually purchase an upgrade for Nova Launcher Prime that adds a lot of even more tweaks that you can utilize. Well, it just turns out the Nova Launcher is, is six years old this week, and so they discounted the Prime version to $0.99, cents, which means that you can get it forever, because you can put it on limited numbers of phones, and I I love the fact that I can, you know, figure out what my phone looks like um, and then save that from phone to phone. In fact, when I go to a new phone, I just download the uh, XML file that has the launcher look that I like. I install Nova Launcher again, restore that look, and then my phone has all the icons where I believe they should be located at and installs them all for me. Um, Easy peasy. So Nova Launcher, 99 cents right now to get the Prime version. Even if you don't want the Prime version, the free version is pretty functional allows you extreme customizability on the Android phone system.
0: Unmute now, it tells me. Very good. Well, thank you, Jason. And for those that are ready to read as much as they can from Jason Knifer, where should they point their browsers and their devices? (sighs)
1: I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I'm also the NCCE Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence, where you can see our blog at blog.ncc.org or find us on Facebook, NCC tech. Or uh, NCCE on Facebook, where we're starting to post some great information about our February conference in Seattle, Washington, February 14th and 16th. We have great featured speakers. I'm, of course, a featured speaker there where I'll be presenting on everything from building effective and scalable online learning programs to a look at the 30 best tools I've seen in the past 12 months, our famous 30 in 50 segment, which happens at NCCE. What about you, Wes? I am W.
0: Fryer on Twitter. I'm in the midst of what is generally a hugely traumatic and very lengthy process of switching uh, web hosts for my virtual private server, my VPS, and so I'm not actually going to be posting anything new uh, until that transition is is done, which I was hoping was going to happen this week. But normally you can find me updating speedofcreativity.org. Uh, in the meantime, you'll just you know see me posting stuff on Twitter at W. Fryer. So we are the EdTech Situation Room, your pretty much every week podcast breaking down headlines from the technology world from an educational focus. You can find all the information about our podcast, all of our links at edtechsr.com, edtechsr.com slash links. will take you to our Google document that has, as always, several articles that we did not have time to cover this week, but you may want to check out on your own. We also are uh, always sharing archived versions, and so in addition to subscribing to our YouTube channel, you can download 32 kilobit, about 12 megabyte in in all uh, hour-long, hour-and-10-minute episodes to your mobile device, and you can also download 360p, which works out to be about 200 megabyte video versions if you would like to watch us in action. So until next time, we want to encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Remember next week, Pardon me for our final show of 2017. It will be an hour early and you can always follow us on EdTechSR on Twitter to find out about the latest changes as well as link to the live stream. Thanks so much for tuning in and let us know if you've got comments or questions.